Welcome to Round Hill Radio, the podcast from Round Hill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we're talking about when we talk about faith. Today, we welcome the Reverend Jim Antall. He is a denominational leader, climate activist, author, and public theologian. Hundreds of churches are reading his 2018 book, Climate Change, Climate World. He has preached on climate change since 1988 in over 300 settings and has engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience on numerous occasions. He currently serves as special advisor on climate justice to the general minister and president of the United Church of Christ. Welcome, Reverend Jim Antall. Welcome to Round Hill Radio. I'm Leslie. I'm Ed. And I'm Jim Antall. Welcome, Jim. Welcome, Jim. Great to have you with us. It's great to be with you. So it's really a, really a gift to have you with us today, Jim. Jim is the, uh, the author of an amazing book, Climate Church, Climate World, How People of Faith Must Work for Change, and what a time to be addressing the issue of climate change. We've been living in a global pandemic now for some months when the entire globe has been, you know, population across the world has been wrapped up in this issue and how to respond to it. We're still in the midst of it and the future is unclear in many ways, but what does seem to be clear is that we cannot take our eyes off the challenge of climate change and what that means for our generation and future generations. So Jim, you've written on this, you've preached on it, you've advocated for it, you've, you've exercised civil disobedience on behalf of this cause. What was there a turning point at some stage in your life that finally mobilized you, or has this been a lifelong issue? Can you tell us about that? Well, uh, that's a, a wonderful question. Uh, a couple things come to mind. Um, I was an undergraduate at, uh, at for the first Earth Day, and that made a big impression on me. Um, I had had the opportunity to move to California when I was 15 and had hiked in the Sierra Nevadas and kind of followed in the footsteps of John Muir. So when Earth Day came and I came to a consciousness of uh, the disrepair of the Earth, um, it really got my attention. And I, I guess that began my activism. Um, but for most of the, for the entire decade of the 70s and in, into the 80s, the, the actual focus of my concern for the Earth uh, was uh, focused on uh, preventing nuclear war and trying to reduce uh, nuclear weapons. So I, I taught courses on the uh, ethics and history of nuclear weapons, um, and I was also an activist in that regard. Um, but then, um, you know, after the freeze movement and after uh, Ronald Reagan, of all people, uh, together with Gorbachev, reduced the number of nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. um, that was exactly at the time when James Hansen went before uh, the um, House uh, uh, in Congress and gave the first report to Congress on climate change. Um, Carl Sagan had gotten my attention in the late 70s in relation to the greenhouse effect, because I have a science background and my family are all scientists. Um, but when Hansen uh, gave his ad ad address in uh, 88, I think it was, uh, and then Bill McKibben's book came out in 89, um, I was all in on climate mm -hmm. and, and began preaching regularly on it. Um, and, and it really became my life's concern. I'm curious, Jim, when you started that, did, was there any kind of a groundswell of movement in the church at that time related to climate change? Where, when, as you introduced the theme, was there already a receptive audience or what, what did you find? Well, it, 
turns out uh, the, the short answer to your excellent question is no, there, there wasn't. And, and at least many of us look back at that and we think, really? Uh, the, you, you mean from the beginning, the church hasn't been concerned with protecting God's creation? Uh, you know, after all, so, you know, Psalm 24 begins, the earth is the Lord's. And as I say in sermons all over the place, it's not ours to wreck. Um, but, but it turns out that um, very, there had been very little done uh, by the church in relation to uh, the environment. Now, having said that, my denomination, the United Church of Christ, um, had its first um, re resolution at its national gathering um, in the 1970s. Um, and you can trace a long history of concern with uh, the environment um, in the United Church of Christ's uh, sort of resolution history. Um, I've added to that, you know, over the past uh, 10 or 12 years uh, by having written three resolutions myself, all of which passed. Um, uh, so, so the, the, the awareness within mainline Protestant church, and of course, you know, we're on the fifth anniversary now of Laudato Si by the Pope, mm -hmm. the awareness within the Catholic church worldwide um, has really grown over the past, uh, certainly over the past five years, but really over, over the past 20 years, I would say. I don't want to bring up any age issues here. I may be just a couple of years younger than you are, but I was actually at Iroquois Middle School in Niskayuna, New York, and I was in sixth grade, and every that was the first Earth Day, and every single student in my school received a copy of the Environmental Handbook. Wow. So that was a school that really meant to sow a seed in every single one of us. And, and I remember the movies that we saw about the devastation that was happening to the planet at that time. So there it was, you know, 50 years uh, and running that we've been trying to kind of catch up with this. But Oh, that's so important what you just said. Uh, and, you know, at that time, uh, because Leslie and I uh, both have worked uh, in the outskirts of Cleveland in Shaker Heights, the Cuyahoga River, which is the river that runs through Cleveland, it was on fire. And that was one of the motivations that prompted the Nixon administration, that as well as the original Earth Day. And you know, you were younger than I was then, Ed, but maybe you remember that 10% of the American population were in the streets or at some kind of a teach-in on April 22nd, 1970. 10%, that was 20 million people. Yeah. And, and people also often forget that, that the entire Earth Day thing was a Republican and a Democrat coming together and saying, this is not a partisan issue. I think it's worth mentioning, too, because, you know, when I lived in Cleveland, learning about the history of the river, and I, I think a lot of young people, I know I did, took for granted that Earth Day hasn't been a thing forever. You know, you grow up and you have Earth Day. Of course you have Earth Day. Why wouldn't you have Earth Day? But tons of people remember it not being a day that we honor. Um, and I think that speaks to the power of that we are continually working for this change, that it hasn't been a, a, a thing, you know, for, for as long as perhaps we think it has been. Well, and to connect what you just said, Leslie, to, to a question that Ed asked earlier, um, 
churches in the 1970s, very few churches did anything on the Sunday around Earth Day. Mm -hmm. But over the past 10 years, you can hardly find a church that doesn't do some acknowledgement on the Sunday before or the Sunday after in relation yeah. to we all have our favorite setting of he's got the world in his hands. <laughs> Amen. So that makes me think of another question. Um, every once in a while, someone will say to me, Ed, you know, I'm, I'm really behind this. I'm thinking climate change is happening. We've got to address this. But Ed, this is a political issue. This isn't really something that we want to get into from a spiritual or religious side. And I'm thinking to myself, What's Jim Antal going to say to that? So, uh, Jim, what do you say to that when people think, hey, this is, a, this is something that really, we get it, but it doesn't really belong in the life of the church. What do you think? So, so let, let me respond to that by using my gentle voice. <laughs> and, and, and that is, you know, hold on a second. Protecting God's creation is not a religious issue. We, we, as people of faith, whatever faith perspective we may hold, as people of faith, we cannot allow the protection of God's creation to be ceded to those who want to make it into an ideological squabble. Mm -hmm. It cannot be reduced to that. This, after all, is God's creation. What could be a more important issue? for the church and for every house of worship, regardless of its faith perspective, to engage. So that, that's my response when people say that. And do you find that people are willing to be engaged at that level? I mean, as, as you start to have conversations, have you found that there's still significant resistance or does that, does that feel like it's dissolving a bit? Well, you know, when I became the leader of the 400 UCC churches in Massachusetts in uh, 2006, and at that time, I was, I, I, I was clear when they hired me that, listen, I'm going to be preaching on climate change regularly every Sunday in a different church. Um, there were some churches, it was still a, a small percentage uh, then, and Massachusetts is, of course, a liberal state. Um, uh, there, there was maybe 10%, maybe at most 20% of churches where there was some pushback to something I would say in a sermon, some very critical question. Um, and maybe once or twice over the course of hundreds of sermons, somebody walked out. Um, but by the time, I don't know, by 2011 uh, uh, or so, when, um, uh, when you know, as, the, as their leader of uh, all these churches in Massachusetts, um, I went down to uh, Washington, D.C., to the White House, and I was arrested along with... Uh, I think it was 1,151 others over the course of two weeks. Um, uh, I, had, I had nothing but support coming from uh, what at that time was about 380 UCC churches uh, in Massachusetts um, and gratitude uh, for, uh, for leadership in relation to what was then the focus of our concern, which was the Keystone XL pipeline. That focus has expanded now to um, uh, many, 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 many other pipelines. And, uh, you know, and thank God for that focus because as a consequence of local activism, mostly local activism, uh, literally dozens and probably hundreds of pipelines that had been planned um, have now been um, set aside and canceled. Mm -hmm. wow. uh, Jim, I wanna just kind of leap into the current, to the current moment when the pandemic uh, 
began and, and things began shutting down in all kinds of ways back in March and April and May, we started to hear reports on the news about the impact of that environmentally. So there was less usage of certain things, less consumption, fewer flights, all sorts of things. Um, so I, I think that some people might have felt like, hey, uh, we're on the way now. Uh, we've, you know, we're starting to make a difference. And uh, maybe that's an, an upside of this terrible thing that's been going on. But what's your, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, have we seen differences that could be lasting or were these just moments that have, you know, risen up, but now have kind of. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's such a, there's so many different dimensions to, uh, to what you have just asked. And, and the overarching reason for that is because it turns out because of, of the nature of a pandemic, we have all been through this together. Mm -hmm. We have not all adopted the same response but we have all been through this together. So that's the first thing I wanna say. Uh, the second thing uh, I wanna say is, well, uh, the biggest lesson I think from this pandemic is that humanity is capable of really huge fundamental change really quickly. Mm -hmm. It's like a superpower that we didn't know we had. <laughs> and and so, so much of, of the conversation around climate change is, Oh my God! I can't ever imagine society could change that much, and and then you know when Greta Thunberg starts beating the drum saying, "And we have to do it yesterday," then people say, "Oh my God! We can't change that fast." Are you kidding? Well, the pandemic has proven both of those things are possible. Now, I want to go more straightforwardly to your question. There was a time for several months when so many flights were canceled. Uh, and, and flying uh, uh, constitutes a significant portion of our worldwide energy use. Um, and other, and driving, you know, everybody listening to me right now remembers a few months ago when there were just like almost no cars on the road for God. There was, mm -hmm. there was uh, no, no challenge, uh, you know, in the morning so-called rush hour, aha, the roads were empty. Mm -hmm. so that did for a while result in all the major cities of the world, all of a sudden having clean air. Right. Mm -hmm. And the photos that came out, National Geographic and others produced photos of kind of before and after, and it was completely remarkable what that difference was. But in terms, now to the specific of your question, in terms of like the impact on climate change, it turns out, 2020 is on track. You know, we're in we're in October now. It's on track to be the hottest year in history. Mm -hmm. And the five hottest years in history are the past five years. And whatever diminishment we experienced in April or May, when you add it all up, it turns out the the consequences of 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 our fossil fuel use in 2020 continues to elevate uh, the uh, CO2 in the atmosphere and, and also methane in the atmosphere that, that, that are, are really having catastrophic effects all around the world. Yeah, yeah. Leslie, as you talk with colleagues in, in your field and, and friends, how do you feel that people are responding to the kinds of things that Jim is saying, that here we are, it, it looked like 
we were starting to maybe turn this, the, the needle was shifting a little bit, but here we are still in the hottest year on record. Um, what, what's the sense you get? Yeah, great question. I think it's, um, I think it's one of frustration. I think it's one of, you know, I think we, we hear this a lot of, of feeling fairly helpless, you know, like I'm, I'm recycling as much as I can. I'm driving as little as I can. I'm doing all these little things. And while I know they're important, what can I do that's big? What can I do to make a big impact or make a big splash when you have, when it feels like, these corporations and, and systems have been in place for so, so long that make such damage. Um, I think I, that's sort of the feedback I get. Okay. Yeah. Does that resonate, Jim? Uh, well, you know, it, uh, I, when I speak, whether it's on Zoom or before that in person to crowds, almost always the first question is, and the first comment is something like what you just said, Leslie. Uh, you know, like I'm just an individual. What can I do? And my my friend Bill McKibben uh, has a wonderful response that I've uh, appropriated uh, to that, and, and that is it, it's kind of hard to hear. So I just want to prepare people: is we that we need it. to stop being individuals. And that, like, it's so straightforward. And and a, 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 I find a more reasonable way to think that is we need to lock arms. And, uh -huh. and that's something which, you know, congregations, we, we hold hands, we lock arms all the time, whether it's over communion or over a service project, or whatever. we know how to do that. So when I say this sort of uh, uh, odd comment, we need to stop being individuals. The point is that the only way we get out of this mess is, is as a collective, as a human collective that respects not only what is good for humanity, but also what is good for all of God's creation. Yep. So here's a question I've been dying to ask. The subtitle of your book, Jim, is how people of faith must work for change. So I don't wanna rain on anyone's parade here, but we've been looking at the, at the decline of the local church, right? Over the last 50 to 100 years. It's been a long, long time in process. And yet you seem to have faith that people of faith can actually work for change and, and be instrumental in the process. And, and I think in response to Leslie's comment that that can actually lock arms. Now, some people in local churches must be scratching their heads saying, Jim, we've been on the, we've kind of been on the wrong trajectory here for a while. And now you're asking us to be the change agents. So I want to know what you're going to say to them. Oh, I, I, I thank you. I love this question. Uh, so, so I want to quote um, uh, the Fetzer Institute. Uh, in relation to this. I want to begin by doing that. And the Fetzer Institute um, recently did, they're based in Michigan, and they recently did a, uh, a poll, and they found out that 88% of people said that they are engaged in at least one practice they considered spiritual or religious on a weekly basis. Mm. Okay. Now, most of us who are part of a local congregation, no matter what our faith, we say, wow, well, then where are they? <laughs> and, and so we need, we need, we who are like my age, we need to recognize that people's engagement of spiritual practice 
practice is significantly shifting. Hmm. But but my point when I when I wrote that book and you know how people of faith, it wasn't how traditional congregations can engage this issue. Mm-hmm. It's really how, how people who may be, as, as the phrase goes, spiritual, but not religious, mm-hmm. right? It, all of us, anybody who has any sense of there being a power beyond what we understand or know needs to be motivated by that connection with that higher power and, 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 you know, as I will say, when I have the opportunity to preach to your congregation, I think, I think our entire generation needs to re-examine our vocation. What is our calling? And as I've said in the book, but I've said more better in a, a more recent essay, we need to reevaluate the whole nation of, notion of vocation from being that which is always personal mm-hmm. to something which can be more collective, more universal, that our generation has a vocation to address this issue. I don't know if I heard you say this, Jim, or someone else, but the suggestion was that we may be, in fact, the most recent incarnation of the greatest generation. And and maybe this is always true, but we don't recognize it, but maybe especially so now. No, that's exactly right. I, I said that in this recent essay. It's in a book called Rooted and Rising. And that's exactly the point that, that I made. And, and people back then, you know, including George Bush, who later became president, when, when I think he was 19 years old when, when he enlisted or was drafted, um, you know, he came from a wealthy family. He could have avoided the draft. And he didn't. And he didn't because. He didn't consider it to be a choice, even though he actually had a choice. He Mm -hmm. felt it was his obligation because he happened to be alive in 1940, Mm -hmm. 1941. It was his obligation to go all in in that regard, risk his life, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I, I think it's because we have been born for such a time as this, which is the title of my sermon that I'll be preaching uh, in, in, a, in, in several days for you, because we have been born for such a time as this, it's not like we have a choice in relation to this. This is our calling. This is our moment. This is our opportunity. Mm-hmm. Given that, uh, so Leslie and I and our staff, we plan worship every week. We plan educational events. We're choosing music and we're choosing scripture lessons. How often do you think that worship planners, worship planning teams, ought to be bringing climate change as the theme of the, the underlying theme of the worship experience for their congregations? Well, what you asked the question in such a wonderful way. Um, so, so I have sort of two answers to it. What, one answer is, as I suggest in my book, is um, it, the, the nature of this challenge and its connection to faith, because it's God's creation is such, that it ought to be the case that every single worship service should one way or another connect with the climate crisis. Mm, every yeah, single worship experience in some way. And, and some people often, re- wait a minute. Okay, I, I acknowledge climate change is a problem, but so is homelessness, so is hunger. So, it, you know, and people have their list of missional issues, which I totally respect. But it turns out 
that climate change, this issue in this silo over here, it turns out it's not in a silo. Hmm. It turns out that it's the overarching issue that is going to amplify and make every other mission issue that your congregation cares about worse. And it's already happened. So finding a way for people to begin to shift from that siloed understanding of mission commitments to recognizing the intersectionality of all of those things is important. And, and with that in mind, I think that can influence prayers, it can influence liturgy, it can influence confession, it can influence music, it can influence uh, uh, all the sort of assembled pieces. The, the one other thing I would say in response to your question, and some congregations have begun to do this, is to have a one minute testimony, maybe it's once a month, maybe it's once a week, wherein somebody from the congregation says, you know, listen, my, you know, my family and I uh, over the past year have really uh, taken in this notion about climate change and here's what we're doing and share with the rest of the congregation what they're doing. And one of the impacts that has for a congregation, and this could be so important for a congregation like yours is, Instead of thinking about the impact of the congregation as what your mission budget does and what your volunteer groups accomplish, well, it's also what, you know, I don't know how many families you have in your congregation, but, let, you know, a few hundred. It's what, if you add up all of what each of those hundred families, 200, 300 families are doing privately right. in right. relation to the social challenges that we now have. Um, you begin to think of the impact of your whole congregation, not just the impact of the budget of your church. That, for most people, is a huge shift. And I think we need to make that shift. And that shift modeled in a congregation becomes the model for how we as a people, country by country, but then the entire world needs to make a shift of how we think of, of the impact we need to make in order to attack, to, to address climate change. Jim, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on the podcast today. For those who want to hear more of this amazing person speak, we, he will be giving our message on uh, Sunday, October 25th in our online service. And then if you have questions, you can um, join us in a Q&A later that afternoon time, TBD. Uh, and you'll find all that information in the description of this podcast. Jim, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really, really a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Round Hill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Round Hill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillcommunitychurch.org.